Well, it's so good to be with you today. If this is your first time or your first time in a long time, uh, if, you've, uh, if you're brand new, uh, I want to introduce myself. My name is Chad Kenser. I serve as the college director and one of the, uh, part of the preaching team here at the Austin Stone. And typically, I spend my time uh, serving and preaching at the downtown PM campus. And so it's a real joy for me today uh, to sort of share in the broader uh, life of our church. And so uh, it's good to be with you. If you've got a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 will be there in just a second, and, and you've kind of heard it coming forward today that today and next week we're going to be centering our time together. We're going to be kind of uh, drilling down into the theme of our Advent series that we've titled The Cradle and the Cross. And so today uh, we'll be focusing on the cradle, next week the cross. And so today as we look at the cradle, uh, specifically we're going to be looking at the birth of Jesus. But even more specifically than that, we're going to be looking at the humanity of Jesus and why it's so significant to us, why it matters to us so greatly that Jesus came to us as one of us. And so I want us to begin our time together this morning by reading our passage from Hebrews chapter 2 in its entirety, and then we'll jump right in after that. So Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 18. Uh, 10 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, the word of Christ speaks to us like this. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin or one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely is not, a, not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." A few years ago, when I was still in seminary, I had a professor walk into class one day. He greeted the class and he opened in prayer as he always did. And then following the prayer, he started his lecture and he asked the class a question. He asked us this question, did Jesus ever have a stomach virus? Did Jesus ever have a stomach virus? Now, for some of you, this question doesn't seem odd at all. This question doesn't seem strange in the least bit, especially true if you're coming into the room healthy this morning. That's especially true if you're coming into the room and it's been a while since you've had your last stomach virus. This question comes to you abstracted enough from your personal situation that the answer seems very straightforward to you. The answer seems very clear to you. You're sitting there thinking, well, of course. Of course Jesus had a stomach virus. The Bible says that he assumed the human nature in every way except that he never sinned. But there's others of us in the room today, 
and you hear that question altogether different. You find yourself walking into the room and maybe you're on the upswing of getting over a stomach virus or you've got a situation at your house where your family has been collectively wrecked by a kind of sickness with throwing up and all the rest and this question hits you a lot more personally, doesn't it? Because you're well acquainted with the, the discomfort, the displeasure of a stomach virus. You know all about the fever. You know all about the chills. You know all about those other not-so-glorious moments that come with a stomach virus. You know about these things. And so for you, you know firsthand that a stomach virus isn't just uncomfortable. Man, it's undignified. Like no one puts those moments with a stomach virus up in their most shining of moments. This is when you put on the soft pants, you put on your, your, your sweatshirts, and you get comfy on the couch, and you bring the, you bring the trash can next to the couch because it might just get crazy. I know at my house when I'm sick, for me personally, I've got such a low pain tolerance that it might as well be Armageddon. The, the world's coming to an end. I get whiny. I get cranky. I get desperate. I get dependent. I get pathetic. Our pet's heads start falling off. Uh, all, all hell breaks loose when I get sick. I've got uh, a wife that I just drive crazy when I'm sick. I'm a terrible, terrible sick person. And so then to think of Jesus in this way, to think of Jesus in this way, uh, in some of our grossest moments of bodily existence, man, it seems a bit disrespectful, doesn't it? Uh, it seems, even maybe to some, it seems blasphemous. And why is that the case? Well, I think that's because that some of us, we've got this sort of one-dimensional view of Jesus. We've got this sort of one-dimensional view that maybe we either picked up from somewhere that we just assumed. And what I mean is this, that, that maybe you see Jesus uh, as this sort, of, this sort of invisible friend that's hidden off in the recesses of your heart somewhere. And he's just sort of mysteriously guiding you to heaven, uh, mysteriously kind of guiding you through difficult moments in life and there to give you blessing. Uh, and that's just simply what he is. He's an invisible friend off somewhere. Or others of you, you see Jesus and you see him so high and so majestic and so exalted and so powerful that it's difficult for you to come around and grab a hold of any concept of his nearness to us. And so it seems weird to think of Jesus vomiting. It seems weird to think of Jesus feverish. It seems strange to us to think of Jesus teething as a baby or stumbling over himself, learning to walk as a toddler. This seems strange to us to think of him in the way that the Gospel Luke says that he grew, he actually flourished in wisdom and in stature. Maybe to think too much of the humanity of Jesus sometimes causes our minds and distracts us from the dignity of the one we worship. But it's exactly this humanity it's exactly this humanity of Jesus that I want us to think about today, that I want us to focus on. It's exactly this humanity I want us to focus on because the reality that the Son of God came to us. Uh, he is the Son of God. He's much more than a mere man, right? He is the God-man. But the fact that God the Son humbled himself to come to us as one of us, man, it has everything to do with the reason that you and I can have hope this Christmas. Because here's the reality, right? Like some of you walk into the room today, and this time of year can be very difficult. Some of you walk into the room today, and, and, and this time of year can be very difficult because maybe, maybe, maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one or a friend. 
Some of you younger couples in the room, maybe you've recently received the word of a miscarriage. Maybe some of you, it's the loss of a job or you've got some family conflict going on and you don't know which way is up. And so you come into the room and this time of year is not something you're looking forward to you. It doesn't feel like joy to the world, right? And so the question you may be asking this morning is, is God near to us? Is God near to me? Does God care about me and my situation? Is God able to understand me and relate to the depth of the sorrow that I feel in my chest? Is there any purpose for all this? And I just want to say this morning, right from the start, that the answer to every single one of those questions is a resounding yes. And I don't mean to be trite by saying that, but God does see you. God does care for you. God does understand you. God does have a purpose for all this. And we're given a window into the way he relates to us and the way he cares for us when we look to the humanity of Jesus. We're given this window in the way he relates to us and the way he cares for us when we look to this cradle of our king and his stable in Bethlehem. And so the scene is set for us here in Hebrews chapter 2. And notice first with me in verses 10 and 11 the way in which Jesus came to us in his humanity and he was born to a cradle of humility. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so these verses come right out of the gate and they make very clear that though Jesus was born in our likeness, he was also one who was unlike any other. It says here that he was the one for whom and by whom all things exist. He is the creator and he's the sustainer of all things. The chapter earlier in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that he's the exact imprint of God's nature. That by the word of his power, he upholds the universe. So there's never a time he was created. Instead, he's the one who's created all things. And yet the beauty and the wonder of this passage is that though he was eternally glorious in every way and fully God, verse 10 says that it was fitting. Verse 10 says that it was fitting, it was right, it was appropriate, it was even necessary that if he were going to be effective to save us, if he were going to be the founder of our salvation, he had to be made like us. He had to join us. And so if you're a parent or if you've done some babysitting, you know exactly what's going on in this idea, in this passage at home, I'm the father of, of two little girls. I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old, and I've got a five-month-old. So as the father of two young girls, it's very easy for me to want to come home after a hard day at work uh, and to sit on the couch or to sit in my chair and just kind of unwind for a little bit, catch up on some sports center or play on my phone, something like that, while the girls play there in the floor or they run around the house yelling and screaming and all the other chaos that comes with young, young children, Right? It's very easy for me to want to sit there and sort of father my girls from afar. And there's nothing wrong with sitting on the couch. I have every right to do so. I'm the man of the house, right? But I'll tell you, there's a big difference. There's a big difference that happens, and it's a visible difference in their face, and it's a, it's a visible, uh, an audible thing in their voices when I make the move to get off the couch and to get on the floor. 
There's something in their countenance that lifts. There's something in their smile that broadens when I close the gap from the couch to the floor. And I sit there in the floor with them and I, I build a tower out of blocks. Or we'll go on into their room and I'll sit on the floor with them and we'll play with the dollhouse. And I do that in a very manly way. There's a visible difference that happens. And again, there's nothing wrong with sitting on the couch. There's nothing wrong with sitting in the chair. There's a place and a time for all of that. It's good and right. But I'll just tell you that there is something that shifts. There is a wild shift that happens when daddy lays down his rights and he joins his girls on the floor. And that's exactly what Christ has done for us here. But by joining us, he has closed the gap. You see, here's the reality, that God is not some sort of far-off deity out there in the distance, out there in outer space beyond us. No, 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 he is Emmanuel, right? He is God with us. He has every right to rule and to reign over us from on high, but he laid down his rights and he emptied himself to join us on the floor. He came to us at ground zero to make himself known to us as one of us. And so verse 11, it says this, that he humbled himself to share with us in the same origin, to share with us the same source, that is to join us in our humanity. And I love this, that at the end of that verse, he joins us in our humanity to such the extent that look at the end of verse 11, it says, this is why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. I don't know if you've ever come across this verse, but this is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother, sister. Listen, Jesus isn't ashamed of you. This is part of the joy of Christmas, the fact that, that Jesus isn't up in heaven somehow sitting there angry or stomping around wondering when you're going to figure out how to live life the right way. He's not up there sitting around wondering when it is that you're going to figure out how to stir up your affections for him or to start obeying him. He, he didn't wait for you to find a way to get to him. That couldn't happen. He came to us. He came to us. He humbled himself to a cradle and to a life in order to show us his great love for us and his deep desire to make us his own. Listen, his deep desire to make you his own, even his brother. And so this is a humility that's unmatched. Think of the great lengths to which Christ has gone to make us his own. The Psalms tell us that he has, as the king of heaven, wrapped himself in light. And he stretches out the heavens like a tent for him. And yet he humbled himself to be swaddled in cloth. Psalm 104 goes on to tell us that he has forever been clothed in splendor and in majesty. And yet he humbled himself to be born under the clouds and stars of night. He is the giver of life. And yet he humbled himself to be sustained and given life through a virgin's womb. He is the one to whom all creation has looked to for its food and sustenance, and yet he humbled himself to every process of human development, even to the dependence of trusting Mary and Joseph to feed him when he could not feed himself. He is the one who has eternally existed in glory with unending riches. 
And yet he humbled himself to the meager home of a carpenter in the backwoods town of Nazareth. And so some of you come into the room this morning, right? And you come in here and you're wondering, does God love me? What does God think about me? Others of you come into the room and you're not quite sure if you really care what God thinks about you or if God loves you. But can we at least notice together the great lengths to which Christ has gone to make us his own? That he humbled himself to a wooden cradle in a stable for animals. He humbled himself to this extent in order to pursue you, to love you, to save you, and along with you bring many other sons to glory. He most certainly was born to us in a cradle of humility, but also notice, secondly, he was born to us in a cradle of suffering. In these eight verses here, Hebrews 10 through 18, in just these eight verses, the suffering of Jesus is mentioned four different times. It's mentioned in verse 10, it says this, for he was, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering. It also mentions this again in verse 14. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, suffering, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Again in verse 17, it says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and here it is, to make propitiation, that is, an atoning sacrifice, suffering, for the sins of the people. And again in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And so very quickly and repeatedly in this passage, it becomes very clear that from the very beginning, the birth of Jesus was intentional. The, the birth of Jesus was purposeful and it was directed that the birth of Jesus, it meant suffering. And so you and I have got to hear this because I think that when typically you and I have a, have a vision in our heads, an image in our heads of the manger scene, what we typically come around is Hallmark, right? What we typically come around is angels singing as three kings bringing their gifts, as exotic animals laying all around and as shepherds joining the angels in song. And this nativity scene is right and true, but we've also got to see that the whole life of Jesus was caught up in the fact that he was our substitute and deliverer from the very beginning. That, that every stage of the life of Jesus, he was bearing in his humanity the full weight of humanity and the mission of his father. At every stage, from infancy to death, bearing the full weight of humanity, not just for himself, but for all mankind. And so we see the sense of this in the life of Jesus and the fact that there are several passages that point to the way he, he had this sense about himself. And one of those is in Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, it talks about how Mary and Joseph packed up the family to head on to Jerusalem when it was time for the Passover feast. Uh, and in this passage, many scholars estimate that Jesus would have been around 12 years old at this time. So this would have been uh, adolescent Jesus, right? They head on into Jerusalem. They have the Passover festivities. They have a great time. They participate in all of it. 
And then as it comes to a close, they pack things up and they're heading back to Nazareth with the rest of those who traveled with them from Nazareth to Jerusalem. They're heading back home. And then somewhere along the way, still a far ways off from Jerusalem back on to home, Mary and Joseph have one of those home alone moments. You know what I'm talking about where the mom wakes up on the plane and she realizes, I've left Kevin back in Chicago. Kevin! This is exactly what happened to Mary and Joseph when they realized as they're heading back to Nazareth, we've left Jesus back in Jerusalem. We've lost the Son of God. We were given one job, raise up the Christ. So they head back to Jerusalem. It says they looked for him for three days. They couldn't find him. And then finally they found Jesus in the temple. They found Jesus hanging out in the temple with the teachers of the day. And it says he was amazing them there with his understanding. And I, and I love this, the, the, way, the interaction between Jesus and his parents, and I have it on the screen for you, Luke 2, 48 and 49. It says, when they saw him, Luke 2, 48, when, they, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, and I love this, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Understatement of all of history, right? In verse 49, and he said to them, I love the response of Jesus, he said to them, why were you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Other translations say, did you not know I must be about my father's business? And so the point of all this is that from a very early age, Jesus had a sense of who he was and what he was called to do. He had a sense of the weight that he was bearing for all of humanity. Did you not know I must be about my father's business? We also see this playing forward and later in life when he started his ministry in Mark chapter 10, he famously quotes and he states, did you not know that the son of man didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as what? As a ransom for many. He understood the full weight of humanity and what he was going to do. And so th all throughout the life of Jesus, he's familiar with the suffering that comes with the human experience in a broken down world. By his birth, he knows the stress of a newborn baby as they're gasping for their first breath. He knows the stress of a newborn baby as their whole world changes in a moment as they're transferred from the womb to life here on earth. Jesus, he knows deeply the strains of what it's like to grow, in a house, grow up in a house with financial burden. His dad was a hardworking carpenter from a rural town. And it was in that setting from Joseph that he learned his first lessons of trusting God with everything. In John chapter 4, we see that Jesus, he, he, he became closely aware, intimately aware of the difficulty of having a bodily existence in a fallen world. He knows what it's like to have a body that gets worn out to the point of exhaustion. Jesus knows what it's like to be tired and have nothing left in the tank. Later in life, he came to know the grief of losing a close friend in Lazarus. He knows the frustration of being in constant conflict with people around him and even being misunderstood. Have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever had that frustration that no one really gets me and what I'm going through? 
Jesus knows that moment. He also, he also knows what it's like to have the loneliness of one of your close friends betraying you and rejecting you. This is why Psalm, or this is why Isaiah 53 rather prophesies about Jesus saying that he would be the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so it's true that Jesus was made like us in every way. He experienced suffering and temptation in exactly the same ways that we do. And he did all of this in order to give us help. Look again at verses 17 and 18 with me. It says this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted. Look at what it says. He's able to help those who are being tempted. And, and so Jesus, he knows something of those moments where, where, where it seems like you have that, that knot in the pit of your stomach, when it seems like your world is falling apart. He knows these moments uh, when, when there's, there's temptation to sin. He experienced very real temptation. He knows those moments of grief and despair. He knows those moments when your mind is flooded with the thoughts of, does, does God love me? Does God, can, can he be trusted in this moment? He knows those moments, maybe even wondering, is any of this real? Think of the anguish he had in Gethsemane. Does it have to be like this? He knows those moments. And so we mentioned at the front of the service that, that there's some of you walking in today and you're experiencing some real grief. You've got some real pain. You've got some, maybe some depression and some despair this Christmas. And would you hear, would you understand the truth of the birth of Jesus and his humanity? It means that God has not left you. It's a sign to you that God has not forgotten you. He's been faithful to all of his promises. He sent us his son. He has not forgotten you. Would you see in the humanity of Jesus that he grieves your loss with you. He's not some tyrant in the sky saying, could you get over it already? Move on. He grieves your loss with you just like he did with Mary and Martha after the death of Lazarus. But here's the good news, right? He doesn't just sympathize with us. It says that he also stands to give us help. He stands to assist us. He stands to strengthen us. And he does this precisely by two ways. He gives us his spirit to live inside of us. And that spirit stirs up within us the reminder of the promise that there's coming a day when it won't be like this anymore. There's coming a day when there's not going to be any more cancer. There's not going to be any more miscarriage. There's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears and death is swallowed forever. He gives us his spirit to help us, but he also gives us the support of his people. He gives us the support of his people. He saves us into a family. He calls us brothers. Therefore, he gives us brothers and sisters. We don't walk alone. He gives us people to walk alongside of us in missional community. He gives us people to walk alongside of us in all the ways we're part of the church to strengthen us to build us, to challenge us, to encourage us when we can't find the way up. 
But there's others of you, right? And you're here today and you're grappling with a guilty conscience. You, you, you're coming in today and you've got this burden of shame that's weighing you down because recently you found yourself caught up in some things that you said you would never do or that you would never do again. And now you're wondering, is there any forgiveness for me? Is there any love left for me? You know the weight of your sin. And to you, would you hear and would you understand the high priestly work of Jesus means that for those who believe every single sin of yours, no matter how dark, has been wiped away and erased. That you don't have to wander in here today wondering, does God love me? He didn't come for the well, he came for the sick, and that's good news because we're sick. We don't have to wonder, does God love me? Will he forgive me? We don't have to work our way back into God's good graces. Jesus has given us every good grace from the Father. He has lavished a love on us that has called us sons and daughters of God. And so for those of you grappling with that guilty conscience, would you receive that kind of rest today? Would you receive that kind of grace by faith today that it is finished? And so it's true, right, that Jesus was born on that starry night in a cradle of suffering. He did so so that he could understand us and so that he could be an ever-present help in our time of need. But it doesn't end there, does it? It doesn't end there. It wasn't just that he was born into a cradle of humility or that he was born into a cradle of suffering. It doesn't end there. I'll tell you where it ends. It ends in exaltation. And that's the last thing I want us to see today, that Jesus was born into a cradle of exaltation. Now that might sound kind of crazy to you. Coming right out of a conversation, right out of a discussion in humility and suffering, how can it end up in exaltation? But that's exactly how things work in the economy of God's kingdom. That's the way it's always been. In God's kingdom, the way up is the way down. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it works for you and I in salvation. The way up to right relationship with God is the way down through repentance and confession of sin. And that paradigm has never been more true than in the life of Jesus. So he was born to a cradle of humility that, that eventually led to his suffering, but it didn't end there. In God's good plan, it didn't end there. It was a cradle of exaltation because his birth was a sign to the enemy that his time was short and that his defeat was coming. I'll show you what I mean. Look back at verses 14 and 15. It says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, there's the way down, there's the suffering and humility, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. He destroyed the power of the devil. That's the exaltation. And so it's true that Jesus uh, was born this way and he suffered for us on our behalf, but he didn't suffer as a loser in defeat. No, no, no. When Jesus suffered, he suffered in victory as a conquering king. He suffered in victory as a conquering king, destroying the power of the devil who stood over us as our accuser before God because of our sin. He destroyed him. And so, though Jesus was born in meekness, he, he was not weak. 
You see, those cries from that Bethlehem stable, those infant cries from that Bethlehem stable, they weren't just our Savior gasping for his first breath in life down here on earth. They were also cries of battle, signaling to Satan that your time is short, the true king has come, and you are about to be conquered. You see, Satan still has nightmares. Satan still has horrific memories of two-year-old Jesus stumbling over himself learning to walk. And why? Because he too remembers that promise God gave us in Genesis chapter 3. That when sin came into the world, he promised Adam and Eve that there's going to come a day I'm going to send a Messiah. And though Satan's going to seek to strike his heel, behold, those feet and those legs growing strong will one day soon crush his head. It's a cradle of exaltation. And so this is the way it works in the kingdom of God. Humility and suffering. These things, for those who believe, they always give way to exaltation. That's the way it was for Jesus, right? It didn't end in death. He's now been exalted to the highest place. He's been given the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus is Lord. And the good news of the gospel is this, that the story of Jesus becomes our story. The story of Jesus, the life of Jesus becomes our life and our story. So that no pain you walk through, no suffering you walk through, no difficulty you walk through is empty or without purpose. But we know that God is working all these things together for our good and glory is coming for us. Glory is coming for us, church. And so when we think about the humility of Jesus, when we think about the suffering of Jesus, when we think about the exaltation of Jesus, these things ought to, they ought to shift some things in us this Christmas season. They ought to move some things in us this Christmas in the way we celebrate. I mean, just very practically speaking, right? Like, the fact that Jesus was born means that this Christmas when you gather around the table with relatives and distant relatives and people begin to start sharing stories around the table of what happened in their life this year, you don't have to be the kind of person that tries to prove yourself to those distant relatives. You don't have to be the kind of person that always has that one-up story from the one next to you. You don't have to earn your approval as though your worth is caught up in whether or not Uncle Tommy thinks you're awesome. No, 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 no. The fact that Jesus was born means that God has already counted your life of infinite worth and value such that he gave you his son and he now calls you brother. You don't need the approval of others. You've got the approval of heaven. When we think about the humanity of Jesus, it ought to shift the way we deal with our bitterness. We don't have to hang on to the bitterness of that, of that coworker or that that family member that hurt us so deeply years ago. We don't have to hang on to that kind of stuff. And why? Because we know that in the humanity of Jesus, he understands the hurt of betrayal. He understands the hurt of harsh words being hurled at us. He understands us and he helps us to give us the kind of grace and forgiveness to forgive those just as we've been forgiven. And when we think about 
the ex exaltation and victory of Jesus. It ought to shift the way we handle that religious debate that gets brought up around the Christmas table by the non-believing relative. Listen, because of Jesus' exaltation, we don't have to win the argument. We don't have to have the last word. Jesus isn't a loser. And he doesn't need you to win an argument to maintain the true meaning of Christmas. Right? Our king is big enough to defend himself and he's big enough to turn the hearts of sinners whenever he so pleases. So that means when the debate comes around the Christmas table uh, and people start mocking Jesus or mocking whatever, whatever tradition we have as Christians, we can be the kind of loving and gracious people to be patient, quick to listen, slow to become angry, slow to speak, right? We can become the kind of people who are prayerful for our unbelieving relatives knowing that Jesus has already won. He's already been exalted and his standing doesn't change whether or not they say crazy things. And so we join him in all of that. And so I want us to end our time together by reading a passage of scripture, fast forwarding two chapters in the book of Hebrews to chapter four, verses 14 and through 16, where these same ideas we've talked about this morning are picked up. And reiterated, it says this in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Here it is, verse 15. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Verse 16. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. So let us then approach him with confidence this Christmas because we know through his cradle and through his life that everything he said about his kingdom is true. We know through his humility and his suffering that he understands us, but we also know that as the exalted king with all the authority in heaven on earth, he invites you and me to come close as the exalted king with all the authority of heaven and earth he says to you and I come close approach me with confidence brother sister let's pray father we want to gosh want to just say thank you today Thank you, God, that, you, that it's true that you're not some sort of far-off God, that you're not just some sort of far-off deity that, that has abstracted himself from us and now is just waiting for us to figure out how to work life down here. But Jesus, you are the eternal word of God who through you created all things, yet you, the word of God, became flesh and you dwelt among us. You are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You were made like us in every way that we might have a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. You made propitiation for our sins. And you're able to help us now when we're tempted.
And so, Father, again, I pray for my brother and sister in this room today that those who are grieving, Father, would you lift them with the sympathy they have from Jesus? Would you remind them that they're not alone? You haven't forgotten them. You haven't left them but you stand to help them, would you remind them of the promise they have that there's coming a day when it's not gonna be like this anymore? And lastly, Father, for those who are celebrating this Christmas, would they remember, God, that you've given them every good and perfect gift through your cradle of humility, suffering, and exaltation. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.